make it move, Javante Davis Living young, got room for patience This a dope podcast, it ain't drugs when we move in Houston, we got a problem, taking off like the Rockets This a three-man weed, coming at you with topics Get to hit me with logic, baby, showtime's back You slow, catch up, you run a 4-9 flat It's imperative, transitioning from changing the narrative You can catch this wave from the Marlins to the Mariners Doing things you can't believe It's the three-man week Come at you with topics No, you cannot stop it Doing things you can't believe It's the three-man week We come at you with topics No, you cannot stop it Find us at Three Man Weave underscore on Instagram and Twitter. We have a Facebook group at Three Man Weave Group. You can email us, email us any questions you have at podcast.3.man.weave at gmail.com. Uh, and so let's get right into it. Introduce yourselves. Give us a little bit of background. I don't know how we're going to do this, uh, but I will say let's let the ladies go first and we'll start with the last one to join. <laughs> yes, okay, that's you, I'll Morgan. Go first. <laughs> Um, my name is Morgan Gilmer, and I currently live in Cincinnati. I was raised in Cincinnati, born in Atlanta. Um, but, you know, I, my heart is just torn. And I'm, I've been advocating for black rights and human rights and advocating from the beginning of time. And I think I come from a different perspective because I was raised um, my dad being a police officer and my mom teaching in the inner cities and um, me being in the military you know just seeing those different perspectives and living that life you know just urges me to just want to get out and preach even more so that's you know my where my heart is and that's my reason where I, I you can use you can put me on any platform because I want to use my voice and I want to utilize my experience and my background. Yes, yes. On to you, Ms. Alex. Uh, my name is Alexandra Mary. Um, I am a PhD student. Most of my work stems around uh, mostly like educational equity. So I work, I currently work with the um, Metropolitan Education Research Consortium where we work on a project to train local teachers on how to be, how to use more culturally responsive teaching practices. Um, and then also my research centers around critical consciousness development for youth. So. That's where my lane is. You're a Trojan. Don't leave that out. Yes, and I am a VSU alum. I am a Trojan. Okay, thank hey. you. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, we'll, we'll, we'll go to you next. All right, yep. So my name is uh, Dr. Now, I can actually say that now. Woo! Dr. Brandon Allen. <laughs> Just uh, deposited my dissertation. Uh, much of my work focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as social justice and higher education. Uh, my dissertation uh, focused on using critical race theory to examine how predominantly white land-grant universities utilize chief diversity officers. So pretty much how we put chief diversity officers in place, but we often don't give them the support that they need. And often they often have to combat a lot of challenges with being at a land-grant university. So if you're ever familiar with agriculture and the this landscape of agriculture in, in general, it's very white. Um, and so a lot of times those come with a lot of racism and, and a lot of times these institutions serve as small microcosms of American society. Um, and so I wanted to unpack that and challenge how we, we utilize those diversity offers that we put in place. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Um, 
Do I call you Lawrence? Do I call you Kodak? <laughs> <laughs> I just named for everybody. I don't know, man. Um, well, my name is Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence Kodak Totemay Jr. Kodak is a nickname. Uh, received at Virginia State University. Graduate of Virginia State University. Um, I'm an educator, uh, combat veteran, uh, first generation born uh, African uh, here in America, and uh, community activist and, you know, very similar to what Morgan said, what's going on right now uh, is heartbreaking, but it's a symptom of what we've been following for oh so long and like waving our hands, trying to get everybody like, yo, pay attention to what's going on over here. Uh, but we've all been paying attention to what's important in our personal lives. And now we're forced to pay attention to what's going on in everybody's life. And so now we're seeing, hey, human beings are being treated as though they're not human beings. And uh, together is going to take us to really change that. Okay. Uh, thank you all for joining us, uh, joining me once again. Uh, really, let's just jump right into it. My first question, uh, feel free to uh, go first. Uh, anyone, just jump in. Sorry. What do you think is different this time? Because we, we're seeing a lot of different backgrounds joining in on this fight. A lot of people gaining an understanding of what's going on post George Floyd. Um, I know there were a, a lot of things that happened this year with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, just to name a few, there's more. But it seems like George Floyd was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, just give me your perspective on what do you think was different this time? Ladies. Yes, I was waiting on too. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I think 2020 has just been a rough year. And so, you know, you say what, what broke him, Campbell's back. I said 2020. It started with Kobe and then it went to coronavirus. And, you know, then, you know, we've seen, we've seen how these things have been played out, but we might get one or two a year, right? So it was like Trayvon Martin, maybe two years later, then it was Eric Gardner. But then we see four incidents happen in a weekend, a weekend. I mean, we're already stressed enough, I think, dealing with, you know, the circumstance of 2020. And then when we see four in a row videotaped, you know, this is an issue. Enough is enough. We're tired. We're tired. So I think, you know, we're just under pressure. And then, you know, I think it just happened to be because of the coincidence of it all happening back to back to back. And at what point do we say, this is where we draw the line, you know? Alex? Yeah, I think there's that. And then I think just from my background, like studying psychology, I often think about things from a psychological perspective as well. And I think that part of it is that also as a nation, we've had time to collectively raise our critical consciousness, right? So people have had time to really since these events have happened to work through their cognitive dissonance or their, you know, whatever, I don't know how you say that in uh, <laughs> plain terms, but um, to work through that, that dissonance between what they thought America was and what they've learned that America actually is and actually come to an understanding um, that has enabled them to maybe feel more comfortable, at least in terms of like, when you're talking about uh, non-Black folk getting out and advocating. That's one thing that I've been, I've been chewing on and been thinking about. Okay, Brandon? 
Yeah, and so uh, and and I think they both uh, I think they both made great points. I would also I would, but I, I would also say that given everything like America could not hide from from racism this time, right? We think about I think it's and I really think it it really started with COVID nineteen when they start asking questions about what was those racial backgrounds about who was being most affected by COVID nineteen. I think that's when people really start saying there's a real we, we have to come up to a real understanding about what race is, what race means in this country and what it means for our health. And then with, then we add on to that police brutality. Then you start saying, okay, we also have, we have a health disparity and then people, and then the police brutality part comes, comes back into play. It's like, we did not take a, we didn't take a rest from any of those things that we kept saying that oh, they, they, those are not uh, real big issues. Now, so now all those issues are coming to boil at the same exact time health disparities, police brutality, and racism in general across the country. And they couldn't have from it, right? We had the data for the, for, for the health disparities. We've seen, and, and then we see, we see athletes talking about and, and companies trying to get back behind these police brutality issues now. And it was like, Kaepernick had been saying these things back in 2016 and 2017, and nobody did, everybody kept saying, oh, that's not the time, or oh, race is not an issue in this country, and they couldn't have no more. And so I think that's what really is bringing everybody to the grips was like, okay, Maybe we was wrong because then you got people coming out and say, "Oh, I was wrong about Kaepernick's protest." Mm-hmm. I was wrong. They all come right and saying that you're wrong, and you're, you're having to apologize. And that's what history does. It's going to make make you recognize who was on the right side of history and who was on the wrong side. I think people are coming to grips with that right now. Kodak, I want to jump in. Man, I follow up on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree with what everybody said thus far, um, and like they said from the very beginning. Um, coronavirus really brought this to the table. And the reason why I say coronavirus, and it's been a blessing and a curse, uh, is because it forced all of us to stay in the house. And once we were, once we were done watching Tiger King and, and The Last Dance and everything else, it was like, mm-hmm. dang, what now? Well, guess what, what now? There's still police brutality going on in the streets. And because we've been filming it and trying to tell you, now you're really going to see it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's forced to see it. And when you see something happen repeatedly, repeatedly, coronavirus, unemployment rate, police brutality, and everybody's like, yo, our black lives are being looted right now. Help us. Mm-hmm. People are like, you have your old folks who are like, uh, that's not my problem. But now you have this new generation who's interdependent upon each other. They've been screwed from the very beginning. 100%. They have they have not experienced America without war. They've been at war. They've been at injustice. They've been called the, the laziest, the whole, most horrible everything behind us and they're like we're not standing for it we're not going we're not going to stand for it and those voices are very loud kids uh young people have always led the revolution and those mm-hmm. kids are speaking up right now and they're saying hey their black lives matter we got everything our parents are good they set us up for generational wealth remember <laughs> and so now that we got this generational wealth we don't have to focus on working we can do whatever we want but it just so happens my friends are black i love their culture and I want to actually save them so I can continue to enjoy everything that I get from it, right? And mm-hmm. so now we have to shape all these people's minds and help them realize and understand what is racism, what is being prejudiced, like what is racial inequality, uh, uh, wealth inequality, all of those things. And it's forced in front of us right now because of social media and coronavirus. Absolutely. Um, I have another question, uh, just because like, 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 we've, like we've talked about this, the murder of George Floyd seems to be just, you know, that last straw. But it's a little bit different than a lot of the things that we've seen. And I want to know, do you all think if 
George Floyd was just shot by the officer, would there still be this like this large outpour of uh, uproar instead of it actually being eight minutes of and 46 seconds of video with this man just casually just kneeling on his neck and the life slowly going away from him? Not just because if you look at it, a lot of the videos we've seen has been gunshots, uh, someone and it's instant. But to hear the man just actually beg and plead and really say, "Listen, I I can't breathe." Even in the even in the in, in the Garner case, he was choked out. But it just seemed to be so quick, and it happened so quickly, and you kind of really didn't understand. But for George Floyd, it was extremely drawn out. People around those people that were videotaping were saying were begging and pleading, and he was unconscious. You know for you know minutes do you think that is really what kind of sparked it if uh opposed to you know something you know him being shot a couple of times and then and then dying on camera the actual just eight minutes and 46 seconds of the slow torture uh is something to do with a lot of the the public outcry from different races so I, I want to speak before the psychologists get up. But honestly, I really believe it's multifaceted. I don't think there's one thing that actually mm -hmm. made people like want to get up and, and do something. Because I think that one of the things that, that happens is we, we, for some reason, America likes to see things recorded. And I, I mean, I think that's this is time period in, so it's recorded and it's shared on social media. If you think about Breonna Taylor, I think there's a, a, a double, uh, a, a number of issues there why hers didn't get as highlighted and didn't get people riled yeah. up um, as much as others, right? But I think with George Floyd, as you said, it, it happens for so long. You had people, he, he was begging for his life. You had people also trying to beg the cops to do anything. And we saw police actually on film doing nothing. And as much as we like to pump up uh, people that's in, in, in the law enforcement as being some type of heroes, we didn't see that. And black folks have been saying, police officers aren't heroes to us. They are more so villains than heroes. And that's the sad way to, to think about it. But if you think about the history of what law enforcement have done to the black community and the things that we've seen uh, in, in certain movements, whether it was the Black Panther Party or the MOVE movement in uh, Philadelphia, like those things, when we started thinking about those and what police have done to those people and black people saying, hey, please don't really help us in our neighborhoods. They really don't be out there protecting and serving us. They, they are protecting everybody, protecting serving everybody else from us. That's what it feels like. And so I think that it's, it's, it's a multifaceted thing of just seeing it recorded, seeing him begging, and then having nothing to distract us. There's no sports. There's no, like when Kaepernick stepped up, right? Everybody kept saying, oh, the protests are not, don't belong to football. It's X, Y, and Z. Focus on football. Now there's no sports. There's like really nothing on TV. Then you have a president who also fans the flames about racial uh, discourse. So you have all of those things just coming ahead and nothing to like really say, uh, I got something to distract my time off. I don't got the pay attention to that. It's on everywhere. Everybody's on social media right now because nothing is going on. And they get to see it over and over and over. And that's a gift in the person itself. Because I do think that type of black trauma, seeing black death so often, so frequent, it really sparks a different type of rage in certain people. And it really tries to, and some, some people who try to run from it can't no longer run from it now. That part that part um everything he said people can't run from it right uh i like to go back to and, and brandon and i can go back and forth because we did on social media <laughs> when, when when bernie and biden were running against each other right we had we had a a a, a 
a white man that was saying, I want to do something specifically for your community in X, Y, and Z. And then we had this other white man who was friends with Barack Obama. Oh, <laughs> you feel me? And so while our black community was split in that moment of go with the person who's saying, I'm speaking directly to your community or go with the guy who was friends with the black guy, they chose going with the guy who was friends with the black guy because most of us are politically uneducated yes. and we do not fully understand like, hey, you don't vote for a person, you vote for policy, right? And again, these are things that we were not taught because we're we're, we're miseducated on purpose, um, kind of like Africa, right? Um, if, if China, Europe, and the U.S. go into Africa and underdevelop it, right? We send all these non-government uh, non organizations and say, we're going to develop Africa. No, you're going to go in there and say, we need grants for this so that you can utilize it for operational costs, get my pockets big. I'm going to give you a little bit, right? But I'm going to keep you underneath that line of poverty so you never have enough knowledge to organize yourselves together, mobilize, and to actually do something about it. And so now our generation, who is very educated, where we're, we fought our way into the workplace, we see what's going on and we're like, this ain't right. And it wasn't just him, it was leading up, Amy Cooper. Mm -hmm. She literally went in there and said, I'm gonna call the cops on you and tell them there's an African-American man and my life's in danger. You literally walked yourself through white privilege on TV. On camera, you told us, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to get your life ended. Mm -hmm. And luckily, he's still alive. But for America to see that, we saw how everybody got angry. And while our chest was still puffed up and we're still like, oh, I'm mad. Boom. We saw the brother die on TV right after that. It took our soul. Mm -hmm. Like you said, AJ, we literally watched it second by second. It took our soul. And it was like, what, what you want us to do? We fighting back now. 100%. Alex, did you have anything you wanted to chime in with? Yeah, I think I think you did a great uh, job, Doc, with your um, <laughs> psychological assessment. I think there is something particular about the amount of time that we spent watching him. I think that there's also something to be said about the fact that the whole time we were able to see his face, able to watch the life really drain from his eyes, and we were able to also see the officer's face and really watch how sinister mm -hmm. uh, he looked the whole time. And I, if I had to think about maybe an additional factor, one thing I would say, in addition to what you all have said, is that there's something also somewhat novel about the fact that um, it wasn't a shooting, like you said, AJ. Um, it, it's... it's Although we know this is something that happens all the time, um, I'm not sure if other folk know that, you know, there are ways that us Black folk are dying at the hands of police officers outside of just shootings. Mm. Um, we're being brutalized in, multi in a multitude of ways. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Morgan, did you have anything uh, you wanted to chime in? Yeah, so I mean, I agree with all that. And, you know, like you said, the amount of time we watched his face, the life, you know, just leave his body. The moment he called for his mother, you know, it's all about that. It's just, it all plays part. And then the sinister look on the officer's face, you know, they always said it's more personal when a person gets stabbed than shot mm -hmm. when there's a murder, because, you know, the, it, even a murder, when it comes to a person, if they want to kill somebody, they're going to do it by shooting them. If, if they're not, if they don't even have that connection. You know what I mean? So it's like, this officer has no clue who this person is and he killed this man the most 
sinister, most personal way. And so it's psychologically like, you know, and I can't speak, I'm not a psychologist, but I mean, I think that it really hit home that we saw this, how it played out the time, the words that were coming out of his mouth, you know, it just, it shook us all. And I saw a meme that said when he called for his mom, all mothers came running. You know, yeah. and that and that really that really hit home. I'm not a mom, but I just saw my mom's face, the life leaving her when she saw that. And it was just you know, something we don't yeah. see every day. Yeah. Um, Kodak, you actually brought something up where you were talking about this generation where our friendship groups are more mixed than ever. White people um are kind of starting to break those generational uh walls that have been set up when it comes to race. Um, and you said we're going, we're here to shape the minds of the new generation. Uh, and that, that made me want to ask a question because uh, you see a lot of outpour from, you know, white people asking, you know, we're re they're reaching out to their black friends. They want to learn they want to have these conversations, but I want to know, is it our responsibility, responsibility to educate them? on the systemic racism that we were facing, the the injustices that we're facing when it when it comes to uh, police brutality, uh, you know, the the red line that we have to face and we can't get funding for homes, our education system, uh, and you know, as far as those discrepancies, is, is it our responsibility to educate white people and how they have been able to utilize their white privilege, even though they're ignorant of the fact that they may have white privilege? I'm gonna key in on the word you said, responsibility. No. Uh, no, it, it, it is not our responsibility. Uh, we try to make it our responsibility when we march through the streets during the civil rights. We try to make it our responsibility when uh, they burned down Black Wall Street. We try to make it our responsibility when we were freed uh, from enslavement. Uh, this continued oppression is their mentality. That's the only thing that they know. Um, and I'm sure Morgan can, can, can feel this as, as a soldier in the military, right? We, we face so much prejudice and racism for being a person of color or even black, but we can't say nothing about it. There's literally, and you guys can look it up, Secretary of Defense sent out a memorandum pretty much saying to any government worker and anybody in the military, understand you work for the government. You are not allowed to speak against the government. How you feel right now about what's going on in the world, that's a personal problem. You can't wear no, no uh, paraphernalia that's saying like, oh, proud to be black. Nothing that's saying, oh, vote for this person. None of that. Just keep it cool. Now, what do you think that does for a person of color in the workplace? What, what, what type of atmosphere have you now created for that person? Absolutely. You feel me? If you, if, if you can't speak up on, on what's, what's hurting you inside and you just expect for me to say, uh, I'm going to deal with it and let this person who knows what's going on and they know they're making you feel uncomfortable, I can't say anything because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Nah, F that. <laughs> Y'all need, need to have this talk. Y'all need to go figure this out because if you don't figure it out, we're going to keep on messing your stuff up. And then you're going to get mad and you're going to be like, all right, we got to do something about this. They've gone around the world for the entire living earth of it, just looting and, 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 and rioting and raping every other country. Now it's happening to America. And now we're seeing it. The same thing that they're doing here is the same thing they're doing in the Middle East. They're doing in Venezuela. They're doing in Iran, wherever. 
we're just seeing it now in America. And now we're like, that's not cool. It's not cool over there either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's crazy that you asked that question because it's very relevant. Um, I had a moment yesterday where I broke down. Like, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And what's crazy, the irony in that is that I was in my military uniform. Um, mm-hmm. I happened to just, you know, get off base and I went straight to a parking lot. And I was like, you know, I just felt like I, I needed to breathe because, you know, I feel like, I hate to say this, but I, you know, a lot of people, oh, well, she talks like me. Or <laughs> my three year old nephew, I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's more so in the military, I think, for the longest time. And that's just not just the military, actually. So I have white friends. And um, for the longest time, it was, oh, well, she speaks a certain way or she looks a certain way. And, you know, I am mixed. So, you know, oh, well, she's not even 100% black. So in their mind, they thought that, you know, that, well, Morgan's cool. Well, when it came to this, you know, I, like I've always been speaking out about it. And I think it was probably five years ago that I really started speaking out about it. Because when I joined the military, I saw it. You know, I was, I was able to grow up in a community that was very diverse. And I had that privilege of, um, privilege, not privilege, because I, to me, there was no issue. There was no such thing as like racism, right? Like I, like everybody was friends with everybody. And that's why I have all these white friends. My white friends love me. And, and I went in going so naive and I'll never forget. It hit me in basic training when a girl from Alabama, she said, you know, we were standing post together and we both had our weapon. And, um, she put hers underneath the the table and the guy came out and he was yelling at me because he said, you know, like, because she didn't do this. Now you're in trouble and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, why did you do that girl? Like, why, you know, you tripping, you know, I got in trouble. I had my weapon on me. Why didn't you? She was like, you lucky. I even had your back here. She was like, cause at Alabama, my daddy wouldn't even allow you on our property. Like, and it was straight blatant. And I was like, whoa, like, hold on, what? Racism? What's this? Like, I had no clue. And, you know, like I said, so then, you know, I joined the military and I make these friends and they're great people. And, but it was more so they were comfortable around me because I walked like them a little bit. I talked like them. But as soon as, you know, shit hits the ceiling, shit hits the fan, you know, I now stand up for my own people and whoa, what's Morgan doing? Mm-hmm. Whoa, hold on. But girl, I thought you was cool. <laughs> and I was like, hold on, but I'm still black, you know? Yeah. And, and, and it took me a long time to, to realize that. So then because I did build that trust with these people, now they want to learn. And now I felt like it was a responsibility for me to explain to them because they are so comfortable to come to me. They aren't comfortable to go to, you know, the other black girl. So, you know, when all of these events happened, my phone blew up. I mean, I had people of authority calling me, asking me, you know, when we go to our drill, you know, how should we approach the situations? I had a lot of white friends come up to me and say, hey, like, can you supply me with resources? You've always been such a person of reason. You know, you've always been. And, and, and. I was like, at first, my ego, I was like, oh, good, they're coming to me. I'm able to be that type of person to be able to communicate with them. And that's great that they do have that trust in me and they do want to learn. But I think yesterday it came to the point when I had 15 text messages all within the hour at like, you know, sending me articles and blowing and asking me for my opinion. And I felt like, whoa, I broke down because I said, I've been posting these things. I've been fighting the fight. 
You know, it's no longer my responsibility. I will give you everything, every resource you need. But then after that, I can't, I can't hold your hand and help you explain to you how to, you know, feel for black people or, or how to educate you. It's like, it's like you're ripping a bandaid open over and over and over again. And for my mental health, I will, I will not take it. So what I will do, I will say here, this is what you, this is what, you know, here's some resources, but from there on, I cannot, I cannot do anything. I can't do your homework for you, you know? And I think I struggled with that, with the dynamics, but yesterday it shifted and I saw that. And I said, you know, like you said, hell no, it's not my responsibility. It's not. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I would, I often say that I'm going to come from, from a different perspective, somebody who's done, does research in higher education. First thing I always say is Google is free. Like, that's what we say. Like, I, my responsibility ain't for you ain't to go search and do all the labor for you, especially when that labor goes unrecognized and then you get the benefits from it. That's, that's often what happens, right? White people come ask black folks for, hey, can you give me some resources to do this? And then they go put it in, into some type of little neat little package and send it to some other people and they get paid for it. And we get, <laughs> after they use our expenses, after they use our labor for it and we don't get no recognition, don't get paid for it, don't do none of that stuff. But also I would say this and, this, and this is one of the main reasons why I say it's not our responsibility is as someone who's done research, someone who, who often sees research being put out there, white folks do not go and read those research articles. Even the educated white folks in, in the higher education system, they, do not, they did not go sit down and read a research article. They'll read a research article about whatever thing they want to read, animal science or what have you, chemistry, food science. They'll go read all those research articles for their benefit. But when it comes to things that talk about race and things that make them uncomfortable, they will literally sit there and disregard it. I taught a course uh, at Purdue University. Um, and that course was uh, called Communicating Cross Culture. It's basically, basically a diversity and inclusion course that teaches people how to engage with different identity, uh, identity backgrounds and what it means for those identity backgrounds. So we're talking about race, gender, uh, national, uh, national uh, na nationality. We talk about socioeconomic status, disability ability status all those different ways in, in, of being. And kid you not, it's a lot of professors that was in there were saying, there's no need for this course. We don't need to do it. Uh, and so when you start seeing those things, it's like you want to say that there's no need for these type of courses. But when things hit the fan, you want to come to me and ask me for my opinion about these things and what resources they have. We gave you the resources. We give you, and we constantly gave you the resources. We constantly gave you the research. I often say a lot of times black folks do only do research so white people can see it because we already know what our experiences are we often tell these people folks they normally don't believe until it's data behind it. and then once you put it the data and put it in a journal article they don't gonna read it so <laughs> they come to me and ask me for my experiences directly when i'm sitting there giving you all these research already and you have not yet cracked open that book one time and you have plenty of opportunity before shit hit the fan and you waited until now and then now you want to come ask me about it you had opportunities so I often say it's not our responsibility because white folks have had that response, have that opportunity for so long and they've done nothing. So mm -hmm. now it's their opportunity to now go Google it to figure out what's going on. Then after you Googled it, after you researched, after you read it, then you can come ask me about some more impressive questions that you may have about the research. Mm -hmm. often, there, there's a, uh, and there's a, a, a good uh, thing that I always tell people to go look at. It's called critical, white, critical whiteness studies. And that's a way to understand how whiteness and privilege have been reproduced in this country and what it really means to have what it really means to have white privilege 
But I often tell people that's one of the first places you can go look at is critical whiteness studies and critical race theory uh, from Derek Bell. And then come talk to me after you've done, after you've done the legwork. Don't, but don't come talk to me before then. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think just even at baseline, like, uh, this is a white problem. Therefore, it's not my problem to fix for you. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that you are ignorant or incompetent on this is your own issue to fix. Um, one of my favorite things to do, like, in my just pastime is just to troll people on the internet <laughs> uh, when they're saying crazy things. Girl, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I have like a can of things I'll say, so I'm not going to get into arguments with them, but what I always do tell them is like, oh, there is a nonfiction book that will clarify this for you. Um, and I kept saying that to this woman yesterday. Like, she kept wanting me to explain to her, and I and I had to tell her, finally, like, I kept saying, you know, there's a nonfiction book for this. Um, and and then finally, I told her, you know, uh, I'm not going to do this intellectual labor for you. And so perhaps you should go ponder why you want me to do this labor for you for free. Yep. This is a capitalist country yeah. at the end of the day. And this is my capital. Why would I give you my capital for free? That doesn't make sense. That is beautiful. That is beautifully put. Yeah. That That's probably the hardest I've smiled in a couple of weeks. That was Yo, amazing. Real live. <laughs> real live. Um, I actually have a, another question. It's going to kind of be a little bit more as far as policy goes. Um, we, we've we heard about what happened to Breonna Taylor. We didn't, we weren't able to see it. Uh, there's uh, something just as damning, but not as uh, publicized with David McAtee in Louisville mm -hmm. um, during the protest. He was killed as well. And in all of these instances, all of these officers their body cam was off. And what I want to know, as far as policy and legislation, why is it not a crime for these officers to not have their body cams on? If you're not going to have your body cam on, what is the purpose of actually having the body cam and, and you know, implementing that, the use of it? They're protected, um, literally by law, <laughs> uh, that they can't go to jail for like first degree murder there it's very rare that you will see a cop go to jail for first degree murder um and it's collusion mm -hmm. <laughs> it's straight up collusion when the police department works with the da who works with the attorney general it, they they all work together and so when you have all of those people who all look the same who all have the same mindset see the world through the same lens they're there for justice but justice for people who look like them and when it comes to us, if, if, again, if that were to happen to a white person, we already know it, it would have been handled. Well, but when it comes to black people, oh, they have a history of acting a certain type of way. So if you weren't able to get your body cam on, it was because you have to react too fast or it was in the heat of the moment or we can find 4,000 excuses of why you felt in danger and you had to react at the spur of the moment without going through the proper steps. Again, myself and Morgan can probably go through right now how do you de-escalate a situation before you actually fire off your gun? But yet we have a United States military, uh, uh, police force who wants to be militarized, but they do not want to go by the same standards. You know, these policies, they, they make it, oh, the police are to protect the people, but really it's to protect the police. And, um, I, you know, I was digging in deep in the Minneapolis, you know, like, why weren't they 
arresting these men, you know, a lot faster because I talked to my dad who's Cincinnati police and he's like, oh yeah, they would have been, you know, they would have been arrested immediately. So I'm so confused and I look in and it literally states that they go after, you know, killing someone, they go on a three day administrative Mm -hmm. leave, Mm -hmm. but they cannot be convicted. So it's like every policy has a but or if and, and it's to protect the police. It's to protect them. It's not to protect the people. And that is, that is where I, you know, I fight hard about changing policies. Well, this morning I was firing off emails and phone calls to the mayors. I was not playing because this is an issue. This is an issue that you guys put the stigma out that you're here to protect us. And yes, there are good cops. Yes, there are cops that want to change, but they are the only people in focus that are trying, you know, they are the only people that are protected right now. And, you know, it, it's really sad to see because if your whole entire, your whole entire, you know, propaganda is we protect the people, we're here for the people, but we get to get away with whatever we want to do because to be honest, I can't get fired. And so they're going to do what they want to do. They don't care. And I think, you know, it, it depends in every city. So you say that the, the law states that they don't have to have their, camera on but I know in certain cities they have to that's actually like I know in Cincinnati they have to have their cameras on 24 7 so um I think also having a just you know having every single city on the same page every department on the same page you know it's funny that in Cincinnati you know where not saying that we're the best or anything like that but out of a lot of policies um they are for the people, more for the people. But you go to these southern states and the policies are more for the police. And why is that? Well, racism is clear as day down there in the South. You know, so you have it, you have to have a standard that is very, you know, that's very clear across the whole border. Because if we don't, then that's where issues starts happening. And I, you know, I don't know. I just, it's sad, but frustrating policy has to change Absolutely. and we have to hold these uh, cops accountable across the border so Alex. i think i think oh no go ahead alex i wasn't gonna say anything go ahead oh, oh um so i there's there's a i don't know how I many y'all read uh, michelle alexander's the new jim crow yes. but there's there, there's an awesome line in there she was like laws are written neutral they're just not applied that way mm-hmm. and so when you think about what 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 these laws what what these laws imagine the common public having to wear a body camera every day, right? You think that if I turn my camera off, I wouldn't be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law? I, I most certainly would. Absolutely. But again, a lot of a lot of the laws that would apply to the public, as far as like murder goes, robbery, stealing, looting, does not get applied to the police in the same fashion because police have this narrative that they are supposed to be for the general public. Like they're supposed to be for the safety of the general public. Right, somebody. I think somebody made a Facebook status that I shared the other day. They was like, "This one of the biggest uh, looters of, of of America is police departments. Because when they arrest you and they take your, your your stuff, they get to keep your stuff. They don't return your stuff to to the general public." I met like I could I could never get away with doing that stuff. Right, I could never go to uh, Foot Lockers, take their shoes off their racks, and then say, "Oh, I thought these were mine," and then not give it back to them. Like there's there's no way I could get away with that. And so. A lot of times that's what happens with policies with police officers. Like, yeah, they might have policies, 
doesn't mean that they're going to uh, apply those policies when it comes down to it. Those policies are more so to appease the general public. They're more so to say, see, we got these things in place. But then, and because there's nobody policing the police, who's actually forcing them to follow through on those laws? This is why, which is why I always say we need, there, there needs to be some type of a common, uh, accommodation, uh, not accommodation, but um, accountability measures for police that people can actually hold them accountable, actually are able to bring up charges against police officers when they are found in violation of the law. That's how I wholeheartedly have always believed that. After I, especially after I read the New Jim Crow, after I read Nobody by Mark Lamont Hill and, and a couple of others, I honestly believe that there needs to, that's the only way that police are really going to be held accountable to their jobs if there's accountability measures for people who are independent of the police department. I'm not talking about the DAs, the prosecutors, none of because oftentimes what, what do we see? The police officers get charged, they rarely get charged. If they do get charged and, 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 and go to court, they don't get found guilty. If they do get, if they do, uh, if they do get found guilty at some point, they get like the minimal amount of years. There was a kid here in Portsmouth uh, where I'm at. Kid was uh, a teenager. He gets shot by the police in the Walmart parking lot. The police officer gets two years. He killed the kid. It's a kid now. So anytime we're not willing to protect kids from police officers, that shows you what what, what is going on with our uh, justice system. And so until we can find somebody that they're actually able to hold the police accountable, that is independent of the police and the judicial system, there's nothing that's going to change about that. They're going to keep getting away with it. They're going to be keep, keep making excuses for it, and that that, that has to change. Yeah, and I um, I don't know if you all are familiar because now I'm stepping out of, outside of my arsenal of knowledge, but I know I learned um, at some point that police brutality is actually federally protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went and looked up the cases real quick. I know it's Graham versus Connor and then um, Tennessee versus Garner, which are these decisions that actually keep police officers from being convicted, um, even when the federal government steps in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to kind of play off that um, a little bit, I actually did a little bit of digging as well. And if you look into the Minnesota's uh, legislation, uh, like Brandon said, we need some someone to you know police the police. But in Minnesota, there's no community oversight committee that can actually bring discipline upon police. And in California, any investigation that lasts longer than a year cannot be punished. Mm-hmm. And the police actually investigate the police. So it's almost like that's like your mother, like you asking your mother to send you to jail. She's always going to see the good in you. And so regardless of what happens, they're always going to get off. They're always going to be protected. And police unions, it's it's the most protective thing in the country where they're un- police unions are untouchable. They're untouchable. And they... There's, there has to be something that happens, whether it's people that we put in office, whatever the case may be, but somehow across this country, I think that's the one thing that will actually allow us to get full justice, I will say, for when these things happen. Because now you're basically just giving vigilantes a badge to do whatever they want because they can't be persecuted. Um, and this takes me to my next question. Why are officers able to just use the I feared for my life excuse whenever something happens, regardless of the amount of protective gear that they may have, the amount of ammunition and options that they can use to kill you, beat you and uh, immobilize you? How can they say I feared for my life and there's no 
Um, let's see, how can I put this? Um, in the military, you have rules of engagement, correct? Mm -hmm. why, why do the police actually have to follow rules of engagement before, you know, like levels to They're say, so hey, but that's what I'm saying. Why is it supposed to, and why is it not legislation where you can arrive on the scene and you can shoot Tamir Rice within seconds? I literally think it is legislation. So I, I think it is those two cases that I just talked about. If I remember correctly, it's that if they fear for their life, that's all yeah. they has to be. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. That, it's oh, wow. really no rules to engagement. It's like as soon as they pull up and they feel like they, it, it, their life is in danger. And I actually learned this from the case here in Portsmouth. They, 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 they are lawfully allowed to try to protect themselves. They don't have to uh, talk anybody down. They don't have to. All they have to do is announce that they're the police and then they can fire. That's, that's literally the, 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 that's literally it. And honestly, um, what, what, go, what, what happens a lot of times is that our blackness is weaponized. Mm -hmm. So the moment that they see our blackness, that is a, they, they see us as like doing the, um, the, doing the Ferguson uh, incident. They, the moment that they see that person, they often try to make it seem like it's demonized. Oh, this person was charged up. Oh, this person, it's almost like we was we always treated as incredible Hulk. Like they look at Tamir, little Tamir Rice at 12 years old was thought to be a grown man. Like that type of thing, that's a weaponizing of his of his identity. Like there's no way that you thought Tamir Rice at 12 years old was a grown man. Like everybody in the community would know a 12 year old when they see one. He might be he may have been taller than average or, or, or what have you, but we still recognize 12 year olds when we see 12 year olds. Um, and so to, to, for him to try to, to try to use any excuse possible, I mean, that's just what happens. It's like they see our blackness as a threat to, to, to their being, and especially when we don't cave, especially when we stand up, especially when we feel like we, we're not going to run. If you think about Trayvon Martin, Trayvon was like, I'm not about to run from, from you. Like, like I, I have a right to protect myself as well. I have a right to defend myself. I have a right to be fearful as well. But when you think about blackness as being something that is a threat, you don't see us as being fearful. You, you look at us like a like a lion, and sometimes that's a gift and a curse. Right? I always like title like I'm a lion, but when it comes to those situations, if you think about a lion being out on the streets, you just think that that lion is not afraid of you more so than you are afraid of the lion. And so that's what they treat us like. Like they treat us like we're we're, we're those type of beasts, and we're not. Like we're oftentimes we're trying to protect ourselves. We want to go home just as much, and that's the problem with policy right now, is that we aren't allowed to protect ourselves against police. And that's why we saw George Floyd die the way that he died, because I'm quite sure those people on the sideline was a little bit afraid to jump in because of we, we don't have any protection against police. Like we can't sit there and defend ourselves against police lawfully without being considered, oh, we're resisting an arrest or we're in, in, interfering in an, an investigation, what have you. Like though, when, when those policies are in place, we feel, we, don't, we feel helpless about doing anything to protect ourselves. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes fear is that thing that makes that fight or fear, uh, the fight or flight response, right? When we can't run away, we're going to fight the police if we have to. And, but again, that comes with legal consequences, and a lot of people will fear that as well. So, you know, the, the rhetoric is, you know, I feared for my life. And I think about this because it's all a relation, relation issue. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. the relationships built with the community lack and yeah. it's because they fear 
of you know whatever they don't know and the problem is is the the lack of relationship builds that fear you know i don't doubt that they do fear them that because that is the rhetoric the black man is is stronger or you know is invincible and the black man can take over and and so you know you have to apply harsher force or more violent force and it's just it's you know if you really just step out your car and have a relationship and talk with the community you realize there's nothing to fear because at the end of the day, we're all human. And if, to them, for some strange reason, we're not human. I don't know what the heck they think we are, but it's not human. And, and so it's like if you just take the time out of your day to build relationship with the community and get involved and step out of your comfort zone, it's not our responsibility. It's not. It's your responsibility. You decide to become a police officer. You decided to be put in that position. You take the responsibility to get to know the community that you protect right like it's not it's not about it's not about a power struggle it's not and sometimes i think when people get into the academy they think oh well now i'm gonna have this power i'm gonna have this badge well you are in it for the wrong reasons so a i think you know policy change again is huge b in the academies we have to start holding these people more accountable there has to be a higher standard and c building relationships it's not you should, it's you have to. You know, I, I went to school to be in education as well. They don't just give you a teaching license. You have to do cohort for two years, building relationship with these students, getting to know how to teach. There should be some type of, you know, policy or some type of um, education that should be in place before these police officers get out into the community, especially if they are white, you know, policing in inner city. Um, and in a city area. And so, you know, it's, I just think I, I preach relationships, 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 because if you actually took out the time to build a relationship, there would be no fear. But yet no one has yet taken out the time to do that. And there has been some cops that have, and you see they're the famous ones. They're the ones that out there with kids, but it's, it's not heard of. And so I think there definitely should be more accountability for these cops and you know um only five percent of calls are violent crimes and that's when you use deadly force so why is it that only five percent of the crimes are violent but yet we're having so many killings that's another issue there has to be some policy that puts a hold on you can only use these um these tactics if it's actually called for five percent is really low so i'm so confused why the numbers are extremely high with using the whole i feared for my life so i had to use these you know these tactics i had to kill in order to save my life you know um, that's an issue so morgan that actually was one of the questions that i had and i was wanted to get to so what i want to no, no 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 that's perfect because that's that's a perfect segue i'm sorry if i cut anyone off um but i wanted to know since five percent of the uh the crime is violent that officers respond to mm -hmm. why is it that every officer has to come out on the scene with a weapon why is it that when you know well, i'll take it to george floyd why is it when they respond to george floyd's call of him possibly using a counterfeit bill why is it that those all four of those officers had a weapon on by their side because guess what if those officers didn't have those weapons by their side would they really be willing to just you know point and push those people that are like bystanders away when he is unjustly you know being detained and i understand that it may cause some uh i'll say 
you know, hesitation amongst people because then you will just possibly have anarchy. But if you're here to protect and serve and you're not doing anything wrong, yeah, you may have to, you know, use your taser, whatever the case may be to de to, you know, immobilize someone, but you're not about to take someone's life over something that's not a violent crime. And that takes me to another point of there's been plenty of people who have actually been called to the scene of someone who's killed multiple people and they've been taken peacefully. So how is it that you respond to a violent crime with a weapon and someone ends up, I mean, a nonviolent crime with a weapon and someone ends up dead? So should police officers be allowed to respond with their weapon to every single call that they get if the call is not violent? No. No. Um, I met a a friend uh, here in LA uh, who's actually from the UK. Uh, uh, And I said, what's the difference between policing in the UK and the policing here? And he was like, your police are effing crazy. He said, everybody runs around with a gun. In the UK, our police officers do not have guns. We have a gun unit. So just like they said, that that 5% of violent crimes, it's called in. We know it is. Now we know to send the gun unit. Any other crime, we're sending our regular police officers. American police, on the other hand, the same way that we often talk about the DNA that we carry as black people because of the trauma that we've had since we've been uh, uh, enslaved and brought to this country, white people have that same DNA as well. But their DNA comes from slave catchers, mm-hmm. right? These original slave catchers are going out, and what are they saying when they're going to catch a slave? Oh, I feared for my life, boss. That's why I had to go and kill him. He was going to try and kill me. He was fighting for his freedom. And you know he's only three-fifths of a man. I had to do what I had to do. You didn't have to do that accent. <laughs> <laughs> and so that just it, it's passed down through generation through generation. And when we were able to unmask the KKK and say, hey, these people are racist as fuck. Like, no, the KKK was smart enough and all these white supremacists are smart enough to say, hmm, what's a job that I can get that will give me a lot of power? I don't need too much education to do it. And people are going to have my back because nobody's going to be accountable over me. The police. Everybody trusts the police. I'm the friendly guy in the blue uniform. So what are you going to do to me if something happens? Oh, no, that black man. You know how these niggers are. You, you, you know how they react. You know what we got to do. It, my life's always in danger every time I go out there. What do we say about the military? Hey, support the military. Support the military. Support the military. But what do we tell military members? Don't you say nothing. Don't you say nothing. Because if we really said something, you're going to be like, wait, we want to support them, but not what y'all do. Mm-hmm. It's all about the knowledge. Then you want to chime in? I don't think this answers your question exactly, but something that I feel like we're leaving out of this conversation is just the socialization process that we all go through in American schooling, um, where Black bodies and Black life is dehumanized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all we really learn about are all the great things about white folk and white institutions. And so, and then you have that mixed with residential segregation. So you get white folk that don't know anything about Black people and don't likely have Black friends. I know that you mentioned earlier that they're more like interracial um, friendships, but from what I know, at least from research, that, that is largely superficial. So yes. I'll even say myself, like, I know some white folks at school, but do they come to my house? No. Like, do y'all have white friends that come over and know your mama and, you know, that kind of thing? No, we don't really, because of the context of residential segregation, have a lot of genuine interracial connections. 
Um, and so then you get these white folk that know nothing about black people going into black neighborhoods and policing. And if I were to just think about it from a structural level, I understand how they arrive at that conclusion that this person is scary because you've been socialized to think that way through media, through education, um, through your daily life as an American period. But it's, it's still problematic nonetheless. And so I, for me, this is why I focus on the education system because it starts so early. I, I'm actually anything grits with that. Um, I have, I have a, a friend, I mean, she's, she's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, uh, she does a lot of phenomenal poetry. Um, and so she all, she, she, I remember we invited her to do a talk one, one time for one of our, our events. And she, she started off with saying that all, all white people are racist. Yeah. And so a lot of people took that and was like, what does that mean all white people are racist? And she was explaining to them exactly what uh, Alexandra said. It was, you're, you're, you're conditioned to see black folks, people of color in a certain way. You're conditioned to see your privilege in a certain way. Like it's unfathomable for you to see that you're privileged because you're going to sit there and say things like, "Oh, I have to work hard for everything that I got, or I have to do all this stuff for everything that I that I, I work for everything that I got." My and my parents came from poverty too, X, Y, and Z, without actually acknowledging that the reason uh, why you may have your family may have started in poverty, they have not been kept in poverty because of their skin color, right? They have not been redlined to live in certain neighborhoods because of their skin color, right? They, they haven't been excluded from certain institutions because of their skin color. And so when you, when, you, when, when that much stuff that goes on in society, when, when these white folks who have never criti critically examined their whiteness take on these roles as police officers and stuff like that and DAs and judges, they're coming from a, from a perspective like, oh, black folks are just lazy, racism doesn't exist, X, Y, racism is not a problem. Uh, and, and, it's just, and, and that's just not, I, I, and it's the same to say that's just not a white person's view. That's a world view, yeah, right? Yes. And because it's funny, and it's a little bit off topic, but I think this this explains how the narrative about black folks is it, it, being circulated across the globe. Mm -hmm. I had a I had a friend who came from Pakistan um, to he came to Indiana because he was there as part of like this exchange program, and he was there, and he asked me to take him down to Indianapolis one day. So I, and on a ride down to Indianapolis. I'm sitting there driving, we're sitting there talking, I'm sitting there explaining to him about the race relations in this country. And because he comes from Pakistan, I was trying to get him prepared that sometimes you may run into folks who may have a, uh, a different viewpoint about where you're from and they might have hold some from very xenophobic viewpoints about your identity. I was trying to get him prepared for that. And as, he, as we're driving, he was like, he thought racism was over. And I'm saying, he said, when I got that one president, I thought racism was over. I thought that was done in America. So I'm sitting there, here's, here's the funny part. So I'm sitting there driving. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what president he's talking about. Something you talking about? I said, you talking about Obama? He was like, nah. So I, I, I got real curious at that point. I'm like, oh, it's not Obama. I was like, all right. I said, come on, Kennedy. He was like, nah. I said, who you talking about? He said, Lincoln. I said, Lincoln. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, no. I was like, no, no. So we had a long talk. Ooh, That's a lot of it's history. Like, it's coming. like an hour and 15 minute drive from West Lafayette to Indianapolis. And we had a long talk on that ride drive, on that, on, on that ride down to get him caught up to speed as much as I could in an hour and 15 minutes about race relations in this country and, and, and why, that is, why that narrative should, should never be mentioned again. But that just shows you how powerful those narratives have been circling around this globe 
And so it, it's, it's imagine that narrative being circular, circulated around this globe, imagine how deep it is entrenched into American society. Mm-hmm. And that's actually exactly what critical race theory teaches us is that American society by virtue is racist. Like it, racism is Americanism as apple pie, as they say. That's and that's right. like they, they, America functions and it's only been America because of how it's functioned and how it's treat black bodies throughout society, throughout, throughout its history, right? From enslavement to Jim Crow to even now, like all of those things are a way for that so that white society and white America makes sure that it may maintains its superiority and where everybody else gets in where they fit in. And if you try to bump, bump yourself up too much, they're going to make sure that you're regulated back to where you're, where you're supposed to be. And sometimes police officers serve that function of regulating and remind you of where you're supposed to be. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you all a question. And once again, I said I wasn't going to keep you here all night. So this will be my final question, but I do want every one of you to answer. With the overload of what's going on in the media right now, how have you been able to deal with your regular day-to-day life, whether it's you know, just sitting at home on your couch or actually trying to be productive while at work? Um, so I haven't. I, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to try to be productive. I actually just told my supervisor the other day because he wanted me to facilitate a discussion with some white teachers. And I told him I don't have anything left to give to white people. And I'm also not going to set the precedent that I will work through my trauma. Um, because you wouldn't ask a white woman to do that. So I've just been sitting on my couch, feeling my baby kick, eating some chips, watching things and taking care of myself. Yes. Love yes. it. Yes. Morgan? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say during this time, I've been, I've been trying to step up a little bit more, you know, um, using my voice. Like you said, I am good for going on Facebook and seeing who can I drop some knowledge on today, but sometimes I can get exhausting. So it's all about balance. You know, I've been trying to, like you said, just take my time, um, for myself first, because, you know, so we talked about education. They did not give us these tools. They didn't give us this education. I, I unfortunately had to learn this just as much as any white person is going to have to learn this. And so I myself am trying to do my day-to-day job as well as educate myself before I put out any, you know, information. I'm trying to read those books and then I'll tell you to go read those books before I, you know, so it's like, you know, at the same time, I'm trying to educate myself. I'm trying to educate people, but at the same time, I just have to relax and take it easy because I, it's traumatizing. The more I dig deeper into it, it's traumatizing. And like you said, you wouldn't ask a white woman who was raped to talk about her rape story over and over and over again. That's tra- so, you know, at the same time, we have to take care of our mental health. And um, so, you know, I balance. Balance is key. Mm-hmm. Real. All right. So, I, man, I would say for me, um, so I, I'm one who, one person who, who who's, this is my like this is my work. So I, I do a lot of this already in my work, uh, as far as like diversity, equity, and inclusion goes. But I also I'm also one that no as known to do protest, organize protest, organize something that happens. But that, actually this time I have done nothing. I have done none of that. Um and it's more so because I've I have i have said when we was trying to get you to get to understand this stuff back when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile was killed and stuff like that, 
nobody wanted to listen. Nobody like it was hard to get people to protest. Like these protests, although they may have been happening, they were really very much smaller than what they are now. And it's like a lot of more people are starting to come to grips with it. I'm like, well, this is your time to do that now. Okay. Like I've, I've been doing that stuff now. So now this is my time to take a break. Like, I'm glad that y'all are doing that now. But you cannot ask me to repeat repeat what I just went through before because all that stuff becomes mental taxing. Like you got to understand how often, like when you're organized as a person of color, when you're organizing something, you, you got to remember why you're organizing. Then you, you start rethinking about that over and over. I'm organizing because another black person was killed by uh, uh, unjustly by a police officer. I'm organizing because uh, Breonna, uh, Breonna Taylor uh, was killed and her just sleeping in her own home. And so when you start thinking about it, like, dang, we're doing this again and again. Like, even though it's it, it's it's rewarding, it's, it's refreshing, it's it's good to see people out there. It's like we're doing it again and again and again. I'm glad so many more people are online. But when is it like? I'm not gonna keep putting myself out on the line, keep putting myself to that mental taxing. This what happened again. So I get to take a break this time. Everybody else can do it. I get to actually sit back myself because we've been doing all this work for so long. It's like, it's good to see white folks out there protesting along with us and doing all this stuff. Uh, even though, I mean, I hope some of them are, are doing it for the right reasons. It's like, good, they can, it's their time because it's their problem. That racism is their problem to own up to. No fault to any black folks who want to be out there with them because I applaud them too. But as for me, I'm like, I did my work early, early on. Like I did, like I did my, I finished my. Like, it's like when you finish the, your assignment and then you put the paper down. I'm not about to sit here and continue like trying to help. Them. I'm like, I finished my work. I get to sit down right and, and watch everybody else do their work and finish their paper, and then we can all turn it in. And then we can come together and start thinking about some collective action. But I'm glad so many folks are out there protesting, marching. Uh, rebelling, doing what they need to do, what is necessary. But for me, it's like the, the other two ladies said, I'm I'm here to just to take care of my mental health. I'm ready to relax. I do get on social media. I do post things on social media, but that's the bare minimum that I'm going to do right now. And I'm and, and that's just for my own mental health, uh, my own uh, you know, experience. But I say I got all my life to do this work. Like this is this is my life's work. This is not something that I'm going to do because of the moment. This is actually something I'm going to do once this moment dies out, and we're on to the next one, the next one, the next one. I get to I can take a break when I when it's so be it. Every black every black person in America, they, they should have that latitude to say, you know what, I, I'm gonna take a break this time because I I just don't feel like going out there and do it. But I want you to keep the movement going. We have the right to be tired. Yes, yes. Tired, and yes. I'm not okay. Yes. I and I have every right to say that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, it was a mixture of both for me. Um, because I'm such a passionate individual, uh, I felt as though I needed to go out there. And so Thursday and Friday here in LA, I was outside. We saw um, you. We saw you. Mm -hmm. New York Times, baby. <laughs> New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> um, Saturday, I received so many calls, and a lot of them was like, be safe. But my best friend called me um, from Portsmouth, Darius Childs. Uh, and like, he really shared some words with me, like, bro, I love you. I love your passion. I love what you do for the community, this, that, and the other. But as Brandon and, and, and Alex and Morgan said, this, this, this fight is their fight. This is for them to wake up. This is for their children to look at their parents and say, yo, you're wrong. Your mm -hmm. thoughts are wrong. Everything about mm -hmm. this is wrong. He was like, our purpose as educated black individuals is to make sure that the narrative stays focused on what we're supposed to be talking about, right? And for us to use our collective and individual uh, uh, careers, paths, whatever it may be, to fight the good fight. Because it's not going to be fought from one angle. It's fought from multiple angles. Yep. Um, 
so I, I use the time now to speak with my mentors and really try and gain more understanding about what's going on. And one thing I really want to share with you all uh, is something that one of my mentors last night, his name is Doc Lawson. He's also a Liberian Olympian uh, soccer player. And he said, what we're facing right now in America continues to happen. The marches, they give you something to make you quiet, they keep it cool for a little bit, then it comes back up and you repeat the same cycle. He said, think of it like this. If you grew a fruit tree, let's say an orange tree, right? And the, the first fruit that came from that tree was rotten. You're, you're, you're going to come back and you're going to try and do something different to that, that, that fruit in order for it to grow, right? And so you'll go to the tree and you'll spray some, some new stuff on it. The next fruit that comes out of it, it's a little bit better, but it's still rotten on the inside. And so now the next generation comes and they do something different to it. And now when that fruit comes, it looks amazing. But when you peel it, it finally, it's still rotten on the inside. Why? Because instead of addressing the, the branch where that fruit is, we need to be addressing the root of the problem, mm. right? And the root of that problem has many branches. And for each of us, we got to choose which branch do we want to address. For mm. me, it's the African connection. I come from a country, well, my parents come from a country that blood runs through my veins that was created for African-Americans. And so for me, I look at it as, how can African-Americans advocate for themselves in a system that does not respond to emotion and empathy without a nation behind them that is saying, we're here for those people. And if you don't do what you have to do to take care of our people, we will cut off our resources that are coming to you. Or we will do X, Y, and Z. We have no power. We have, we, we have no ownership. And so that continent that's sitting over there that has nothing that, but people that look like us, um, in Liberia, we have a, uh, a law in the Constitution that says only a, a native Liberian or a Negro can be a land-owning citizen of this country. Meaning no white people can be citizens of Liberia. No white people, if you want to come there, you can come there, but you have to have a visa and a specific reason to be there. And if your visa runs out, you have to leave. Simple as that, right? The people there get paid a dollar a day. The currency exchange is one U.S. dollar equals 200 U.S. dollars. So imagine if a bunch of us who are educated have these different fields were to return to a country where we're automatically thousandaires, millionaires, and we're building that infrastructure. We're creating opportunity. All of the economic opportunities that we're fighting for here in America are literally overseas waiting for us to go and grab. That's ours. But yet we continue to go into a system that we're fighting that's not meant for us. And so until we all start to realize, hey, we have to fight this on different fronts, we're going to continue to repeat the same problem over and over again. Yeah. That was well said. Um, any parting shots before uh, we go ahead and uh, close out, guys? So proud of y'all platform, man. I love it. Three men we've had. <laughs> Appreciate you, brother. Um, yeah, man. Uh, once again, I want to thank you all for taking the time out to speaking with me. Uh, we felt that this was something that was needed. Uh, I think I just so, had something to say. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> thank you. If I could just say, raise your hand. Get your hand up. <laughs> I am a huge advocate of telling people to read nonfiction books. So, uh, <laughs> you mentioned the New Jim Crow. That's the one I always tell people to start with. So, the New yes. Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and then this book, um, Critical Race Theory. You might have. A better I have story. it. I have it. Um, by Richard Delgado and Jean, Jean Stefanik. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's how you say her name. 
Um, yes, those are good places to start. Yes, yes. Can I also mention a book that I'm obsessed with, Where Do We Go From Here by Martin Luther King. He wrote it in 1968 when, right before he was shot. Actually, conspiracy theories say that he was shot because he wrote it. Um, but it is critical because he literally is speaking to the black community after the, you know, after we already made changes with the constitutional laws and such forth. He says, okay, now black community, where do we go from here? And he mentioned early in the book, you know, we are going to continue to struggle and be in this moment if we do not make these changes. He literally maps out how to live our life. And I believe, you know, it, he hit very key points talking about the economic structure and such forth. And um, it's huge because he mentioned this stuck out to me. He said, you know, we got over the easy part. The easy part, we're changing the, raw, the, the laws, the Jim Crow laws and such. Even though you thought that was the hard part, that was the easy part. He said, now we're about to go into the hard part. The hard part is being able to change the hearts and the mindsets of these white people. The same white people that marched with Mar Dr. Martin Luther King, he said, are the same white people that turned his back when he said, okay, but we want equal rights when it comes to pay. And they were like, oh, you asking for too much, right? So he's like, we're, you know, this, this part of life, which we are still stuck in, 2020 you know where do we go from here how do we live our lives what does our community look like and so i highly suggest reading that book um because it's still relevant and we are still in that moment so. yes absolutely and i while we're plugging books i got two things i want to plug very fast um i do have a, a op-ed coming out on diverse issues of higher education um, it's called how our education needs to respond to the, the systemic violence as associated with police so I give like four different ways in which uh, police off uh, how universities can support the movement by making sure that they reevaluate how they engage with the, uh, local police departments, including um, a, a terminating all contracts where they found police misconduct to be uh, a, a, a very big issue with the local police department, as well as retraining their own police, uh, campus police and things like that. So that will be out. Um, I want to say probably hopefully by next week. And then also the book that everybody should read is called How to Be Anti-Racist. Yeah. And, I think that's the, and I think that's the part where we need to start moving towards. Um, instead of just talking about being against racism, uh, I th uh, uh, his name is Ibram uh, Kendi, and which he uh, when which he actually describes how anti-racist is being anti-racist is much more than just saying I'm against racism. It's actually working to dismantle racism by looking at the different policies in which racism racism is perpetuated with, and how those ideologies are then uh, to be part of your, your basically your identity, your character, and how you move in this life as a person of color and as a person uh, from with white privilege and, and so forth and so on. Once again, guys, um, I just wanna say that um, I know just from experience, I know a lot of you guys, you post great things on social media. You have a lot of great information uh, and you're a, a great resource uh, for this. So if you wouldn't mind, would you please be able to tell everyone where they can find you at on social media so that you know they are able to kind of locate this information or if they have any questions or they wanna reach out regarding some of the things that we talked about uh, that they could reach you. So my Instagram and Facebook is Morgan Gilmer and Gilmer, G-I-L-M-E-R. Thank you. Easy. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. I'm going to be real with you. I don't give out my Instagram or socials for other reasons. 
Um, but if you would like to email me to reach out for any sort of reason, my email is A-M-M-E-R-R-I-T-T at bcu.edu. Awesome. My Instagram is uh, doctor, that's D-R, B, I mean, doctor, on Instagram is doctor.ballen, so B Allen is my last name. Uh, and then on Twitter is Dr. B underscore Allen. So those two, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I normally post more so on Twitter than Instagram, though. Okay, and uh, Kodak's not here anymore, so I'm just going to get out of his socials. And if he didn't want me to, I really don't care. Um, <laughs> he, his, he actually just texted me and he said uh, he never looked at his computer screen and it actually died. But you can find uh, Kodak at, at Agent Kodak uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, at Agent Kodak. And once again, man, I, I really appreciate you all um, for joining me on this conversation, bringing light to a lot of the issues that uh, we may have been discussing or that have just been weighing heavy on our heart. Um, and once again, thank you for joining us at Three Man Weave, at Three Man Weave underscore on Instagram and Twitter, podcast.three.man.weave at gmail.com. Thank you again, man. I appreciate you all. And I love you all. Thanks, AJ, for hosting this, man. This is really important. All right. Thanks, y'all. See y'all. Thank you. See y'all. See y'all.